The book of Malachi, it's the last book in the Old Testament. It's a prophecy, the last prophecy that you would read before you get to the birth of Jesus. We're working our way through it, uh, paragraph by paragraph. Today we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. So the book, uh, the prophecy came to Israel about 450, approximately 450 A.D. And it starts with what God always starts with, love. Verse 2, it says, I've loved you, says the Lord. And because he loves his people, he wants what's best for them, which includes warning them when they're sinning. And so the book of Malachi is a warning from God to his people. A very specific time in their life. And what we find is, God hasn't changed, and people haven't changed. And the sins that they were committing 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, turn out to be the same sins that we're committing. And so when we look at the Old Testament, it's very ancient. It's probably the oldest thing you're going to read this week or this year. And yet, because of the Holy Spirit, because of God's work in it, it connects with us. And that is because truth is timeless, God is timeless, and he has created us to live in an eternal relationship with him. So let's look at it. Now, it does mean because it's so old, it takes a little bit of work to understand it. But I think you have learned by now that if it's the harder you work at something, usually the better it is. And easy things usually are not that rewarding. So scripture is going to be more rewarding the more time you spend on it and the more work you put into it. And so the preaching is a time when the preacher does his best to bridge the gap between the modern congregation and the ancient text. And the congregation works with the preacher as they read the scripture and listen to God speak through the preacher and through the scripture. So, chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? But profaning the covenant of the fathers. Judah has dealt treacherously. Now the word treacherously is going to appear quite often. It can also be translated unfaithful or betray. And it's the key to the passage. Judah has dealt treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Betrayal. That's what this is talking about. 
the one thing that never seems to go away, being a cheat. You ever played a board game? And you're losing. You find out that they've been slipping Monopoly dollars underneath their placemat. You're not mad so much that you lost. It's that they broke the rules. They betrayed the trust that you had when you began the game. That's what's happening here, but on a much bigger level. Now, it does talk about divorce, which is a touchy subject because I think everyone here probably has divorce in their families. But the Bible clearly speaks about what should be, what has gone wrong, but also how we move forward from it. So let's not dwell on the past. Let's acknowledge the past. Let's recognize it for what it is. And let's ask ourselves right now, what can we do right now to follow God? Sometimes we get hung up on, well, I did something bad in the past, and the Bible says it's evil, so God hates me. The Bible has a way forward from this. So let's make sure we are focusing on how we can be more faithful to Christ and more faithful to Scripture and reconcile and move forward from the past. But that's not really what this passage is mainly about. This is a passage about people betraying one another and as a result, betraying God. So overall, God's plan in this passage and in through the whole Bible, God's plan is to show his glory by his people. He wants to show who he is through his own people. But his people fail and betray each other. So Christ comes and he's faithful. And he brings salvation from our own unfaithfulness. That's what we're going to see in this passage. So number one, God declares himself by covenant with his people. Now, we don't use the word covenant very much, do we? Uh, really, we talk about it in church and when we talk about marriage. Because covenant is really too serious for everything else in life, isn't it? We don't like, hey, do you want to form a... Uh, fantasy football team, we're going to covenant together to do that. Mm, no. Even when you join the military, you don't call that a covenant, do you? Because you're like, well, I might want to get out of this later. Right? Some of us have. Some of us are thinking about it. So covenants are, are that's a special word. And it, there's a reason for it. A covenant is a solemn, formal agreement. Binding. Serious. So God has a purpose in this world. You know, God was happy before he created? In the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were perfectly happy. They loved each other. They enjoyed each other's company. They communicated with each other. They had everything they needed. They were happy. So why did God create? So that he could share that happiness with someone else. Not because he needed. So when God creates, his purpose is to let other people enjoy what he has already, namely himself. See, God was happy because he had himself. And we can't understand that because we're so limited. But God is infinite. He's infinitely good. He's infinitely happy. He's infinitely perfect. And so he says, I want you to have some of that. So I'm going to create people. And then in order for you to be happy, I'm going to share my glory with you in the sense of the manifestation of my happiness. Well, that's a big deal, isn't it? 
God's sort of creating people so that they can enjoy him. So he does it by covenant. It's not just haphazard. It's not just like, ah, whoever wants to do this. God is very serious about revealing himself and his glory to people. So he does it through covenant. This is all through the Bible. First, he creates covenants with his people so they can image him. You ever seen an image? A good image connects you with what was taken. A good picture, a good artist connects you with something else, something beyond the painting. When you look at good art, you don't think that art is good. No, you feel something. You're moved by it. Moved from where you are to somewhere else. Maybe if you watch a landscape, you you see a landscape picture, you're moved to the location. When you see even modern art, when it's sort of confusing and stressful, you feel that. Okay, so an image does that. So when God wants to show who he is, he creates people who look like him. So that when you see the people, you see God. When you look at an image, you see the original. When you look at a person, you see the original, which is God. Now, the image and the original are not the same, and we're not God. But God says, this is how I'm going to do it. He first creates people in his image. Then he covenants with them. That's God's plan. So how do you do this first? In the beginning, God created. He said, let us make man in our image. Male and female will make them in our image. Why? so that everyone could see who God is. So man and woman are made in God's image, and when you see man and woman, you see God. But God didn't just leave them there. You see, that's a valuable gift, isn't it? You get to represent God to the rest of creation. And God doesn't just say, okay, go, I'll see you later. You go do it, come back, tell me how it went. No, not with a holy, almighty creator God. So he makes a covenant with them. So Adam and Eve were in a covenant. God says, obey me, don't eat this tree, and you'll live in my presence, with me in perfect harmony. Think the Garden of Eden. But the other side of that covenant was if you eat that tree, you're cut off. You're cut off from life. You'll die. So that's a covenant, isn't it? God is in a relationship. There's requirements, there's agreements, and that's how things should have been. We call it the covenant of works. Man, just by his very nature, followed God. There was no Bible, there was no words, there was no law book. Man, in his created heart, just wanted to look like God. Just wanted, wouldn't that be great? Just want to follow God. That's what the Garden of Eden was. That's why it was so great. God creates man in his image, then he gives him a covenant to live in a relationship with him. Now we know what happens, man fell, creates a division, but God doesn't give up. Thousands of years later, or however your view of time is, some point later, Israel and all the sinful people, Israel's in slavery in Egypt. But God had already made a promise to them. And so he takes Israel out of Egypt. He rescues them, think Red Sea, takes them through the Red Sea, takes them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, what does he do? He creates a people, a new people. 
He created Adam and Eve, and they failed. So now he creates a new people called Israel. And what's the purpose? Exodus 19, when this is happening at the base of the mountain, he says, Now, therefore, God says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What was Adam's job? Show creation who God is. He's doing it again here, a kingdom of priests. Man has fallen and failed. So God says, Israel, you're going to be the image of God to these people. That's my plan for you. So I'm creating you as a nation. I'm putting you in a place where you can show God to the world. And then what does he do? He creates a covenant with them. We know the Ten Commandments. That's the basis of the covenant. What they're supposed to do to look like God. The Ten Commandments, the law, the rules, are basically act like God on the earth. That's what it means. Act like God with your family, with your friends, with work, with your animals, with creation. Because what are we supposed to do? Image God. Called the covenant of Moses. It's a new covenant. Covenant of works was with all mankind. But now it's a new covenant with just Israel. To restore the image. Look at this first verse here. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? You ever look out the world and say, that's not what I see? I do not see this verse being true. I see no unity. There's division everywhere. There's no single relationship that you're in where there's not strife, is there? You and your boss get along all the time? You and your spouse? You and your parents? You and your kids? You in the grocery store? You in the car company? You and the door frame that you stubbed your toe on in the middle of the night? Isn't it just constant strife? And yet he says, have we not all one God, one Father? You see, God is unified. God is at harmony. God is at peace. And what does he want for his people? To reflect that image. He says, Israel, here's who I am. Here's who you should be. And, you know, that hasn't changed. God's goal is unity. Jesus, his last prayer on this earth before he died, he said, I do not pray for these alone, talking to the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. You see how the image goes out of the oneness of God? And the glory which you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. What does Jesus care about? What you pray about is what you care about. What did Jesus care about? That the oneness of God would be manifest in his people. In other words, this world is not following God. And we're not following God. Division is a result of sin. Sin is a result of rebellion against God. So every divisive point in your life is a denial of God. It's a rejection of the unity of God. And that's what's happening in this passage. So he starts out with what should be. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Has he not made a covenant with us? Has he not 
made us to be in union with him and in union with each other? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. Israel, so God, creates people to declare his attributes, but Israel betrays each other. Now, we feel like, but that's not betraying God. Don't we feel like we can have a relationship with God that's separate from our relationship with others? Like, yeah, I'm fighting with them, but when I pray to God, we're okay. But if we're supposed to manifest God's oneness and we divide from others, we call strife, this says you have dealt treacherously with one another and profaned the covenant. The covenant with whom? God. Your behavior to other people is directly connected to your relationship with God. How you are in your relationship with God will manifest itself in how you relate to other people. If we miss that, we'll have a private Christian life that doesn't affect our real life. But Jesus explicitly said, you'll know a tree by its fruits. You'll know someone by how they love other people. You'll know if they love God, if they love their neighbor. And so Israel here is dealing treacherously, not with God directly, but with each other, which they probably passed off as, well, that's not God. I don't have to love and obey them. I don't have to live in harmony as long as I live in harmony with God. But that's not how it works. Covenant obedience in community reflects God's character. Not just obey God. Obey God in community. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, yes, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Satan's plan is the opposite of that. Randy Woodley, a Native American theologian, says, As we submit ourselves to the Creator, he gives us rule over his creation. And that makes Satan jealous. As we submit to each other in unity, diverse as we are, we have even more authority. Satan will go to great lengths to stop us from walking together in unity. Because God is one. And if Satan can't destroy God, he'll destroy us. Then he goes on, Church division can come through any circumstances. From the color of the people to the color of the carpet. How can people fight over the color of carpet? Because Satan will take any opportunity to divide us. Satan doesn't care what method he uses. What do you care about enough to divide over? That's what Satan will use. You see how many options Satan has at his play? He'll use whatever he can. From the color of the people to the color of the carpet. And look at the examples here. The community of God is supposed to reflect God. So what does this tell us? It says, May the Lord cut uh, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, let's be careful to interpret the scripture in context. This is a specific time in history where God's people are a physical nation. A physical nation whose purpose is to produce Christ. The, the, the physical body of Christ. So God comes to this earth, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, comes from this tribe, this nation. Now, this nation is supposed to reflect God. 
God is holy. God does not share worship. He does not hang out with sin. So God expected his nation of people at this time to only connect with people who also worship God. In other words, when you go to marry someone and make sort of the most binding and formal agreement on earth, the most intimate connection on earth, find someone who you're going to bring into your family who worships the same God as you. So what they had done, this is not talking about ethnicity. This is not talking about nationalism. This is simply talking about marrying someone who rejects God and bringing them into your house and into your family and at this time into the community. The community no longer worships God, does it? Now it's a mixed community where some worship God and some worship false gods. That's the problem here. They were trying to mix pagan worship, Satan worship, with true worship. You can't do that. God says, I am not going to accept that because I am holy. You're supposed to be holy, but you don't mind living in close communion with Satan worshipers. You see how upset God is? He says you prof- it's an abomination to unite yourself with people who hate God. And so this community was supposed to reflect the holiness of God, the separation from sin. If, if the community is not separate from sin, then what's the point of the community? There's no special community if it just looks like every other community. And that what's special about this community is that it worships God wholly. And so when they married daughters of foreign gods, notice they're not daughters of foreign people. They're daughters of foreign gods. All throughout the Old Testament, you find foreign people joining with Israel. Jesus' own heritage is, has many nationalities and ethnicities in it. That's not the point. It's who do they worship? Do they worship the true God or the false God? See the connection? There's no longer a physical nation anymore. There's the local church. Who do we let into our church? How do we keep, how do we reflect God's holiness in our church? Simple. We only let people in the community who worship God. Now, some people will use this verse to say, we only let people into our work, to our service who are like us. Missing the whole point. The division here is those who worship God and those who don't. So a holy church, a church that wants to reflect God, will only covenant with people who also want to reflect God. Whatever they look like, act like, from, doesn't matter. As long as they commit and worship the same God as us, we covenant together. Showing the unity and the holiness of God. That's what God wants. And one day, it will come true. That's heaven. When all tribes, nations, tongues, and peoples will worship in unity to God. But they weren't doing this and they were an abomination to God. But then he says, and this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. Doesn't that sound sincere? Like, oh, these people care. They're, they're crying out for God. They're weeping. They're showing over emotions. Like, when you see someone crying and weeping, don't you think they care about something? That's what they're doing here. They're saying, oh, we care on the altar. We're at church. We're at the worship center, just pouring ourselves out before God. But he does not regard the offering anymore. 
nor does he receive it with goodwill from your hands. God says, I don't want what you have. And they're like, for what reason? Doesn't that, can't you see how much we care? How much we've given? How much we sacrificed? He says, I don't want you to worship me right now because you're my people and I am faithful, which means you should be faithful. You can't deny God and worship God. So he says, you are unfaithful, treacherous, betrayers, and are trying to pretend like you're on my side. But God is faithful, and he expects his people to be faithful. Now, it's interesting. Look at verse 15. Let's just talk about marriage between you and the wife of your youth. Now, when it says the wife of your youth, in, in this time period, in this culture, the wife of your youth was your wife. At this time, all the nations, they allowed for polygamy, and so they would add wives as they went. God later forbid that. So the wife of your youth was like your wife. So I don't think anyone here has multiple wives. So we're talking about your wife. It doesn't mean literally a wife when you're young. It just means your first wife and not the second or third wife that you've added. So he's saying, you've betrayed your wife. But did, in verse 15, but did he not make them one? When did God make the husband and wife one? From the very beginning. Some things in this book are for these people specifically, like worshiping at the altar, and other things are for everybody everywhere. So when God created Adam and Eve, he said, I want you to reflect me. And what does that look like? Be faithful to each other, because I am faithful to you. So when they betrayed their wife, they were denying God. It's as if they had a picture of God's faithfulness, and they took a bucket of red paint and tossed it on the picture. The law reinforces this, and so does the New Testament. And the New Testament shows us why it's so important. It shows us why marriage is so important. It's not simply so you can have a happy life. It's not simply just so you can have harmony. Ephesians 5 says in the New Testament, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. You see Genesis, one flesh, Malachi, one flesh, New Testament, one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's a hard shift, isn't it? I thought he was talking about marriage counseling. I thought he was talking about divorce. No, he's talking about Christ and the church. Christ is God, and he's got a bride. That bride is the church. Will Christ betray the church? Will Christ abandon us? So then don't abandon your spouse. If you want to look like Jesus, love your spouse. Christians should never be known for divorce. Now, there are some qualifications in the Bible, but the main point here is that divorce is a result of sin. Sometimes on one part, sometimes on the other part, sometimes on both parts, but it's not God's plan. And why is it not God's plan? Because God is faithful, so we should be faithful. Unfaithfulness to each other, the people that you are around, whether it be neighbor, spouse, church member, co-worker, unfaithfulness to these people denies God, or worse, lies about him. 
you represent God. And when you cheat someone, you're telling everybody God cheats. When you are harsh to your spouse, you're telling everybody God is harsh to his people. When you are isolated from people, you are saying God is isolated from people. You see, it's a huge blessing and honor to represent God, isn't it? But that comes with responsibility. You want to be God's people? You want to have the image of God, the glory of God represented through you? Okay. But that means people see God when they see you. And when you betray people, you tell people that God will betray them. And that's what Israel's doing here. For the Lord God of Israel says, you've told people that betrayal is okay. So I have to tell you, I hate divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence. There's an illustration in the Bible of God spreading out his wing or his garment over people to protect them. But here, by abandoning people, by dismissing, the word literally means to send away, the garment that was supposed to protect and cover your relationships is actually violence, abandonment. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Serious business being made in the image of God. It's an honor, it's a privilege, it's a gift, but it's serious. When we look at this, and when we look at our lives, we realize we cannot image God. We don't want people looking too closely at us, do we? If God is represented in us, then every mistake we make makes God look bad. That's too much for you. Isn't it? That should be crushing you. That guilt and that weight of trying to live a good life, to hide the bad parts, to post the good stuff, to always represent, it's too much. And the more people get to know you, the more they see that you have failed the covenant. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Where's that happening? That's not happening. It's failed. The covenant has failed. So what do we need? We need a new covenant. The old covenant depended too much on us. So we need a new covenant that does not. So the next book that we come to in the Bible is Jesus. And Jesus shows up, and he is the image of God. Hebrews 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So God tried to make Israel do the right thing, and Israel said, no. We try to do the right thing, and it doesn't work. So God says, fine, I'll send Jesus down. He's the express image. Every time you look at Jesus, you see a perfect representation of God. Jesus is always faithful. Jesus is always unified with God. He says, I and my Father are one. I have come to do the will of my Father. Jesus is the express image of God. He's faithful to the Old Covenant. Whatever Adam was supposed to do, Jesus did. 
whatever Moses and the people of Israel were supposed to do, Jesus did. But he's not just an example. Some people are like, wow, Jesus is so great. Let's follow him and be like him. He's an example of how to be faithful. But if you're honest, you never live up to that example. So Christ says, I'll be faithful, but more than that, I'll forge a new covenant over the broken one. He says, I'll fulfill the old broken covenant and make a new covenant. And because of how serious it is, it's a new covenant in blood. To deny God, to lie about God, to misrepresent God is a high crime worthy of death. To tell the world that God is a liar, that he's a betrayer, that he's a cheat, you can't live in God's world like that. So a new covenant had to be made with the same seriousness, blood. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. God says, you're never going to make it. and You're going to die. So he said, I'll send someone to make it for you. To make a new covenant. First Corinthians, God will also keep you firm to the end. Remember what the Israelites had to do? Be faithful like God is faithful. You know what God wants from you? Be faithful like God is faithful. Be holy for I am holy. But the new covenant says, God will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You can't be faithful. You can't keep the covenant. So God makes a new covenant where you don't have to keep it. God keeps it for you. A new covenant where all the hard work, all the faithfulness, all the holiness, all the unity is on Jesus. And we know God can keep it. So Jesus is our sacrifice. He is our life. He is our lamb. He is our community. We are unified in him. We are holy in him. We are faithful in him. We are the image of God in him. And we will live forever in him. He will hold us fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And this is the promise of the gospel. He will hold you. The last book of the Bible tells us what Christ will do for us. You see, the eternal word is the goal of the universe. As he was the starting point, so he is the end. It began in unity. It will end in unity. The only question for us is whose side are we on? Do you trust Christ to be faithful for you, or are you going to try to do it? Here's the end. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. 
His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. But here's the good part. See, that's not good news. You realize that? That's not good news, not yet. Because if he's faithful and true and he comes to wage war, he's waging against those who are unfaithful. Here's the good news. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. You know why his robe is dipped in blood? So that yours can be clean. There's your choice. You ride behind Jesus or you stand in front of him. You follow Jesus or he comes for you. Your robes are clean or you're punished for what you have actually earned. He is faithful and true, and all those who follow behind him get to claim that faithfulness. And all who stand in front of them will pay for their own sins. Yes, we should strive and we should try and we should work to express the goodness of God. But in the end, we trust him. So let me ask you today, what are you trusting in? Are you trying to keep the covenant? Are you trying to worship God the right way? Are you trying to do the right thing? You can't. Or have you trusted him who is faithful? Because if you trust him who is faithful and leave everything else behind, he will hold you fast. Let's pray.